All right, everyone. So on Empire, you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto. And that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the Digital Asset Summit. We've hosted this since 2019. It's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code EMPIRE20. We'll see you in London. So welcome, everyone. This is going to be a very special episode. I'm actually, this might be my first live episode that we've done. So I'm joined by Robbie from Immutable. We've known each other for a bit of time and uh, had the good fortune of investing early on. So Robbie, welcome. Thanks, Santiago. Great to be here. Yeah, it's actually my first time in Sydney and Robbie's been a great host. He showed me around a bit and as you can tell, it's Pure summertime and beautiful out here. So. It's roughly 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, I went to the Fahrenheit conversion, uh, but it is probably the best time to come visit Sydney. So, yeah, highly recommended. So, Robbie, I mean, why don't we start with your background and a little bit of context on Immutable? Absolutely. Uh, so, a bit of background around me. I've been a, a software engineer for the last uh, 10 years now. I um, originally taught myself how to code uh, just after high school. And I've built roughly, you know, four or five startups before Immutable and was a massive gamer growing up. And so the first thing that I built with my brother was a League of Legends betting platform where you could wager on your own matches uh, until that was shut down by Riot Games for breaching their terms of service. Uh, And uh, the second thing we built was a Shopify competitor, which basically automatically optimize your store based on machine learning. Uh, so it optimize your pricing and your copy to have the best possible conversion. Uh, and, and that went reasonably well. Uh, but we got into Bitcoin in 2014. That's pretty early. Yeah, pretty early on. Um, I think uh, we were just investors. We weren't super into the technology. I was like, wasn't super sold. But when Ethereum came out, my buddy got me into it who uh, bought a percent of the pre-sale and he, uh, we just became completely obsessed uh, with essentially what you could build. And that was the big difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum to us is I could see the potential to basically replace hundreds of billions of dollars of financial infrastructure overnight. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that initially sold me was there was a, do you remember Ether roll? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow, different times. Different time. Uh, but the, the magic about Etherwall for me was they launched this product, which is basically a, a probabilistic dice game, smart contract in Ethereum, little gambling application. And uh, I remembered in Australia, which is one of the largest per capita gambling countries in the world. I, I'm not too into gambling. It is, yeah, I think it might be the uh, largest. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, it's kind of sad in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I remember the Australian government in order to ensure that slot machines pay out the required payout amount, they air gap all the machines and then they heuristically test them. So they literally go out of these machines. They're spending them hundreds of times and making sure that they're paying out what they're saying they're paying out. And they're cut off from the internet to prevent any irregular updates. And they spend billions of dollars of this every year. And then someone builds a little application with a few hundred lines of smart contract code that rendered all of that redundant. You had open and transparent probabilities that couldn't be routed around, that were you know completely guaranteed uh, by the blockchain. And then they did something that the government could never do, which is they took the royalty or revenue streams from the protocol and they gave it to every person who used the, the machine. So essentially, you know, democratized ownership of the company. Now, it wasn't the gambling that attracted me. It was, well, hey, if you can build what is essentially a toy, in a few months that replaces or obviates billions of dollars of government spending. This is clearly the most powerful financial technology ever invented. This is going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was uh, also sold by this idea of like the decentralized Uber back in the day, if you remember, that was one of the big pictures along with the Ethereum white paper. Riders put it in the network, fees would compress. 
We haven't seen that happen, obviously, to physical networks yet. I still believe it will. But we have seen that happen to financial and on-chain networks. Right. Things like DEXs, which have incredibly compressed fees and where they're typically democratically owned. Things like uh, Immutable, where we can give every trader ownership of the underlying protocol. So that's what sold me. Uh, me and my brother started building trading bots uh, for the first few years, uh, first on uh, Ethereum, uh, on, on Poloniex, and then on uh, decentralized exchanges. You're on the troll box. I, I did not participate, uh, but yes, I, I, I- It's legendary. It was a lot of fun. until I think they removed that in what, in 2017? Once I got, it got acquired, I think they were, or before uh, it got yeah. acquired, I think they removed it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that one was a, yeah, that one was a, a very funny experience. Um, I remember using leverage for the first time and I vowed to never, uh, <laughs> naked short Ethereum again. Um, and we basically wanted to build a business that would long-term be scalable though. And like actually have an impact uh, on the industry. And so in 2017, it's the start of the year and we were writing the white paper for the distributed autonomous bank. I was at the university at the same time, studying law and computer science. Uh, and uh, my brother was the lead engineer at a, a billion dollar e-commerce store uh, down under here. And we basically, uh, we're, we'd finished writing the white paper in the early smart contracts for something called the distributed autonomous bank or DAP. It was effectively a lending protocol, very similar to Compound. We hadn't solved all the over collateralization problems. I don't think they've been solved today either. Uh, but we were about to launch this when five ICOs went to 20, went to 40. And we just got very cold feet uh, about the space from a regulatory perspective. We thought everyone was going to jail. And we only had interest in building something that would be around for long term. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the first ever NFT came out in the form of a crypto punk. And we saw this and we said, this will be how gamers own in-game items. And that to us was just so blindingly obvious. You know, back then, gamers spent $80 billion US on in-game items every year. Now it's 150. Uh, and so we started by building the first ever decentralized blockchain game. Uh, it was called Etherbots. It came out in December 17. Uh, it went viral. It made a few million dollars in sales. And Coinbase put their first ever venture check in Immutable. And we started building kind of, you know, what we are today. And obviously, over the last six years, we've now scaled it to 300 people around the world. Uh, we've raised 300 million US uh, from 10%, 10 cent and more. Most of that's in the bank. Uh, we've, you know, obviously uh, worked with IMX, the token, which is worth, mm-hmm. you know, roughly 2.53 billion US today. And we have 70% of all Web3 games in the world building on us. So, uh, it's been a, a long journey, but I think um, the the persistence has been the most important thing because ultimately the amount of people we've seen just come and go based on them either misspending money, uh, having the wrong approach to security. It, it's almost funny how well you will do in the space just by being incredibly consistent and focused on your mission and making your smart, sane, secure decisions focused on actually delivering value. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I met you and we made the investment, um, you know, it was... Axie was picking up and I think people were, the, you know, the play to earn narrative was really hot at the time. Now it's completely died down and gaming is a narrative you could argue is, is not, uh, not very popular. Uh, for, I think you're one of the few people in crypto that has a very unique vantage point to understand who is building and what is, what is the reason to build a game on chain? So Maybe you can unpack that for people and and give us your definite, like, what is the type of gaming? Like, what are the games that you're excited about? Yeah. How does it work with Immutable? And yeah. Totally. So I think on-chain games that only represent around 15% of the games building on Immutable today. And by on-chain, I mean the majority of the logic of the game's gameplay, state-to-state transitions would be tried to be stored on, on actual on-chain blockchain code. Uh, and 
I think that's probably because the 80-20, the vast majority of value is from taking the actual asset economies and tokenizing them. And that's what we see as the majority. You, you might call it Web 2.5. You could also call it fully Web 3. In my opinion, something like Alluvium, where 100% of proceeds go back to ILV, the token. I mean, that basically is decentralized evaluation as you can have. But ultimately, what they're doing is a same mix of, you know, they're building a very high fidelity traditional game. Right. An auto battler uh, and, you know, a, a collectible sort of RPG game like Pokemon. Uh, the idea is you take the assets, anything to do with the value of those assets, and you put that on chain. So randomness, merging, using, et cetera, of collectibles. And I think that's probably where we're going to have the biggest product market fit in the medium term. Mm-hmm. There are absolutely some really exciting fully on-chain projects. They're very ambitious. Uh, I think the jury is out as, you know, what will the user experience of like uh, be of those games in the short term? And will there even be the sort of possibility of truly decentralizing a game logic for a, a massively multiplayer game with 30 yeah, yeah. state updates per second? And the challenge you're talking about there is it it really is the computational like intensity of a game if you're – if like every state transition, like every interaction. Precisely, yeah. And a game like, and I've heard Kieran uh, from Illuvium talk about, it's sort of like, think about a Web 2 game, feature parity, the gamer might not even, can play the game without having to set up a wallet, without ever thinking about crypto. Now it's on the Epic Store kind of uh, marketplace or the, in the store. And so you can go download the game, play it. And then it has, I've heard him say this concept of, crypto enhanced. So it's like, if you want to claim the points, if you want to trade the NFTs that are there for you, then you can do that in a decentralized context. And and it solves a lot of the issues like so many people that are in gaming get interested in crypto, right? Precisely. So to me, the, the most obvious product market fit is Counter-Strike Go has uh, a secondary marketplace for the in-game skins or costumes. And they trade roughly 12 billion US dollars worth of those a year. Wow. That's on a database marketplace where they don't permit many third-party marketplaces. They certainly don't permit DeFi or other financial finance utility or, or value being placed upon it. And they regularly do things like trade lock it. So, hey, you can only trade them once per week and like ruin the value of games assets. That to me is, well, let's just give them the ability to truly own and sell that stuff. That's the 100x value proposition. That's where we have an immediate need from an existing demand analog, which is why we were so excited in the first place. Absolutely. I think there's exciting future potential around decentralizing more on-game logic, but I don't think we need to look beyond, let's just take that $150 billion spent every year and actually give people property rights to it, give them an incentive-aligned business model where they can make money, say, through secondary royalties. And and that to me is probably the second most uh, important thing is by leveraging Web3, you're creating economic incentives that can be way more aligned between the publisher and the player. Good example is, Mad to the Gathering, where they can basically, that there's an estimated secondary market cap of MTG cards, physical cards, of roughly 10 to 20 billion US dollars. But every year, Magic is forced to create new cards that are more powerful than any previous ones, sell a few tens of millions of dollars worth of them in order to generate revenue. And that makes the experience worse for everyone because you have power creep, you have devaluation of old cards, you have new sets being deprecating, old sets. Why not just take a clip on these asset trades and your incentive is just grow the GMB, grow the marketplace, grow the economy. That's the exact same incentive as the players have. That to me is a really exciting business model. One that the, it, it doesn't even matter about like what, what is the uh, you know technical level of uh, scarcity enforced on this stuff because it's at the end of the day, 
the publisher has the same incentive as what the player is. And, and that's really what I think Web3 is about under its hood is like realigning incentives of capitalism to be more democratic, more self-custodial, more ownable by everyone. Yeah. So uh, what's interesting, of course, like Immutable, you've been doing it for six years um, and you quickly realize we can't do this on the L1 of Ethereum. We have to build an L2. Yeah. And so I'd like to get a perspective on on that journey of six mm. years because now we have hundreds of L2s. Yeah. But I think you've been very focused and opinionated. Like we want to own the gaming category. What makes Alluvium well-suited for gaming? And um, yeah. That's a great question. Uh, so first off, I would say the scaling journey for us was a hard fought one. I mean, we launched God's Unchained in the middle of 2018 uh, it immediately had more than 30 million NFTs as cards. So yeah, this is more than yeah. every other NFT on Ethereum L1 put together. And this is all launched without a scaling solution because they didn't exist. Yeah. And so we immediately had to invent batch minting and deferred minting, uh, which is uh, one, you could basically have your provable seed of on-chain randomness for say minting your cards, but then you could delegate when you wanted to mint those into actual NFT assets at any point in time later, which meant like, let's say, because I think when we launched... Uh, do you remember Fcoin? It was a centralized exchange that launched and it had an incentivized oh, hey, gas hey, consumption yes, yes. Uh, of L1. And so we, we quite possibly chose the worst week in the history of gas congestion of Ethereum, like to date, to launch Scotch and Saint. I think Gray was above 100, right? For context. Yeah. So suddenly the packs that we were selling for $5, where the previous uh, gas fee was 10 cents, now had a $10 fee. Yeah. So you're asking people to pay a $10 gas fee. For a five little pack of cards, it's not going to work. Welcome to crypto. <laughs> welcome, welcome to crypto. Good luck building your business. Uh, and so we we literally uh, we we did two things. One, we invented deferred minting, where you could say very cheaply, not create all of your NFT assets, but just the the on chain randomness seat. And then when Gray was three, you could like mint it on chain. Uh, and and that was a big thing because it, you know effectively similar to. Do you remember when you could like buy gas when it was cheap. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like the, this was this proposition, but like made very simple for gamers. The second thing was, or as simple as it could be back then, uh, the second thing was uh, batch minting, which was a, a way of uh, optimizing gas efficiency for NFTs by like 90%. And that's a standard still used by every major marketplace in the world today, um, which was invented by Alex, by co-founder. And uh, we realized that even with all of this innovation architecture, it was still nuts. Like you're still, at any point you're requiring gamers to even pay a cent, it's too much friction. And there is no way you will hit a billion gamers. So we started looking down the path of scaling solutions. And we basically investigated everything under the sun. We had a look at side chains and we decided they never were suitable for our security profile because the number one thing we would never do, we would never put users' assets at risk. For company reasons, you put your company at existential risk if you have one failure, you will never regain the trust of players nor the largest companies in the world. They will never build on you. Mm-hmm. But two, because we truly believed in the value of decentralized technology and like what we're building. Otherwise, what's the right, point? Yeah. Let's just build a state competitor, right? Yeah. Um, uh, then we looked at Plasma and uh, nothing happened there, right? <laughs> uh, and then we looked at uh, optimistic uh, proofs and, and this whole branch of, you know, roll-ups. And, you know, I think that was, for us, didn't work for NFTs because of the, the withdrawal times and also because of the cost structure. Right. Um, and we thought, you know, ZK was probably the, the long-term, uh, strictly superior solution. This is back in 2020, so pretty early when we were making this call. I still remember the conversation with the board and they're like, 
this is a science bar- science experiment. Are you sure you want to bet the company it? And we're like, we're pretty sure this CK thing's going to work, guys. Like, hear us out. Uh, and we, we ended up building, you know, the, essentially the first ever in production CK roll for NFTs with the Starkware team with StarkX. Um, and we released that in the end of 2020 slash 21. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously now we're, we're launching double CK VM for smart contract compatibility, et cetera. Is that with... Uh, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, I think it was a long, uh, scaling journey. I think we had state channel experiment in there for like two, four months as a prototype as well. Uh, so you've literally tried the, the entire flavor of the, you basically just described the fear, like the Ethereum's like scalability journey. Yes. Cause you received. Oh, and I didn't even mention the most important thing, which is, well, why not build an alt L1? Because <laughs> it would have been very easy to build an alt L1 to raise back, you know, back then we'd raise 15 mil. We could have raised 50 and pitched to a VC. We're building a new chain for X, right? And that was the most attractive thing you could do for venture. But we thought that Ethereum's, we, we wanted to build whatever we wanted to build. And we also wanted to build with true decentralization and security. And on either of those, we just couldn't see a way where you're building outside of Ethereum's ecosystem or not scaling Ethereum's ecosystem. For us, uh, scalability on top of Ethereum was far more attractive because you can inherit all of Ethereum's network effects and liquidity. Sure. And you also get the, the security of, you know, what, what I think is by far the most decentralized and secure blockchain in the world. Um, so that was a decision we made pretty early on, which was, Hey, we're, we're, you know, we're, if there was, you know, it's not some, random form of maximalism if there was another blockchain that was like well, yeah in the requirements for us but there just wasn't and hasn't been up today yeah. Yeah. i mean i want to get into zkvm it just yeah like zero knowledge proofs as a category unpack that a little bit but i want to ask you the question but you read my mind is if you were to do it t- today from scratch uh we have other l1s um would you consider something else i think we made the right call with ethereum uh, and I'm happy with. Yeah, but would you do it today? For sure. Oh yeah, yeah. If yeah, we uh, absolutely, you you kind of have the same setup in L2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we if we were, if I were going out the yeah. you know door and coming back in and saying how do we build a meter from scratch? Absolutely, it's zk EVM on Ethereum. I think is, and I think the gaming market has largely shifted to want to build around an Ethereum ecosystem. I think the alter because remember the difference like and you know this is better than I do, but uh, every single. Bull run, you have this chain rotation thesis, right? Where like, you know, the Chainlink God article, which I'm a big fan of, uh, which, which basically says, you know, you get congestion, you get high prices, you create narrative fodder to create all ones with reduced decentralization, improved scalability. And then you back those with hundreds of millions of dollars in order to bootstrap liquidity from scratch. That's what we see every single cycle. The difference about this cycle is L2's work and L3's work on Ethereum. So now the narrative can be actually you can scale this thing uh, sort of horizontally rather than having to create brand new L1 architecture. And so I think that's the fundamental technical difference between, you know, what's going to be the next bull run, whether it's in six months, 12 months, 24 months, and the historic ones we've had. Yeah. So talk to talk to us a little bit about um, the, the choice to do... Um, ZK, like zero knowledge proofs. Because, yeah. you know, for anyone that comes to crypto, this is like the holy grail. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, you know, but it's taken a while, like a lot of good things. So tell us a little bit about that. So I think if you're just looking down the decision pathways, it's, well, do you want to build on Ethereum or off Ethereum? And we made that choice pretty early on. We want to build an Ethereum aligned ecosystem. Then the choice was what scaling infrastructure can you use? And uh, apart from side chains, 
there wasn't really much that was viable apart from rollups. And that was even speculative back then, right? Obviously, sidechains were available. This was 2020, 2019? Uh, even when we're looking at uh, like sidechains as an option, that's 2019. Yeah, yeah. Um, slash end of 2018. The only other alternative is some sort of centralized solution built on top of Ethereum, like with Ethereum assets, but the like custodial. Uh, and we were never really happy with custodial by default. And I think centralized solutions or centralized exchanges as backings for NFTs have clearly proven to not work, right? Yeah. Um, so that that was, a, I think, the right call as well. Then you get to the roll-up landscape and you basically have to choose between optimistic roll-ups or ZK roll-ups. I, I think OIUs uh, are you know, generally fine, but for NFTs, they just in particular don't well, work well. And, and that's A, withdrawal times uh, obviously much longer because you have to wait for, you know, for this super is, event. You know, if you're working with optimism or, or you know, this is four or five. But this is the four optimism even existing, four, right? right? Like this is like. But generally yeah. as an architecture, it just takes exactly. a couple the, days. Exactly. You could have like incentivized like rally, uh, like relayers to yep. prove that, but it's still a lot. Precisely. And and the benefit, like if you have fundable tokens, you can mark and make. You can say, okay, well, I'm willing to take risk yeah. as the bridge and like kind of loan you on the other side. I can't loan you your one of a kind NFT, right? So it's by definition really, really hard to do for right. NFTs as a use case. Then it comes to what you use in ZK. Uh, and I think there was probably only one even close to production uh, team back then, which was which was Starkware, uh, which built, you know, we built our first app-specific roll-up. So it was a, a Validium implementation, didn't have any smart contracts, but I think what it did do was uh, it gave us scale, it gave us security, and it got us to market. And uh, the, the really important thing in that is we wanted to use something which directly inherited Ethereum security. I think that was that was crucial to us. And we also knew... We had to be able to support the scale of hundreds of millions of NFTs. I mean, like, let's be real. This takes off. You have 3 billion gamers. There is going to own thousands of assets. We have to support the scale of trillions of NFTs being traded many millions and millions of times per hour. Uh, so I think uh, that was why we ended up on, on ZK and we've been able to stick to that pathway, uh, obviously expanding. Uh, we, we now have both Immutable X built across DarkX, app-specific roll-up, uh, no smart contracts, and we're about to launch Immutable ZKVM. And with the launch of Immutable ZKVM, we're also going to be able to launch uh, our app chain uh, hypothesis, uh, or, or sorry, our offering, which is basically cross-roll-up liquidity and you know, a, a large platform, a large game, kind of their own Immutable app chain yeah, yeah. with global order book. And, and that's what I'm really excited about is sort of horizontal scaling. Again, you read my mind because I wanted to get your perspective on DYDX because um, I believe Diversify you guys and DYDX were probably the first projects to use Starkware. Yeah. Uh, and then DYDX made the choice uh, to go to Cosmos and have their own chain. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard folks say, look, building on Cairo was difficult. You have to use the, like, basically they're the systems and like they would have to build it for you. Now the tooling has improved and, you know. I, w- I won't speak on Cairo specifically and, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, big, big fan of the Starkware team. I think right. they're exceptional people. Um, the, the main thing that's shifted, even since we made our initial decision, is EVM uh, compatibility rather than EVM transpilability. Uh, and typically, we've actually always been, I, th- I think, anytime a competitor says we're launching a proprietary language, like, you know, uh, a cadence or, or, or some sort of like proprietary scripting for their um, smart contracts, it's a massive impediment actually to adoption. And they're always advertising it as this is a great way to use our blockchain. It's not. It's just you have to learn a new uh, language. Right. And all of the network effects, people hypothesized back in the day, network effects would accrue to DeFi. 
It doesn't. DeFi can be cloned for the cost of $30 million in grant incentives, as long as you use Solidity, because then you can just copy paste Ethereum. And that's ridiculously easy to do, as we've seen. Uh, so I think there has been massive network effects built around Solidity. Uh, you can even see the like even slight differences mean there's brand new forms of security and risk architecture, which means all of the benefits you get from smart contracts being audited is lost. So I, I think that those network effects will persist. Uh, and that's why we, we really value true EVM compatibility over like even a slight loss of uh, composability. Yeah. Um, how important do you think security decentralization is for the gamer? I mean, do you think that that's relevant at all? I mean, I appreciate from your standpoint, absolutely. But it's one of those things where how do you envision like, you know, it's always a, a spectrum of security. Like DeFi totally. requires way more security, yep. you could argue, yep. than a game. Totally agree. Uh, gamers should not have to care about this, but it's incredibly important. In the same way that if you used non-secure end-to-end encryption websites, users would not notice. Users shouldn't have to know the security algorithm that encrypts HTTPS. But it's absolutely fundamental to their information and data. If you're using the wrong thing, you're damaging users, there's going to be breaches of data, breaches of privacy that impact them. But it's something that they shouldn't ever notice. So it's it's a funny uh, thing where you can kind of get away with it for a period of time. Your consumers aren't necessarily going to immediately notice. But as soon as you have one incident, you then lose the ability to have any future customers adopt you. That technical debt sort of creeps up on you. Precisely. So like I, I think... And also, the value of NFTs is not going to be trivial in gaming. Like, there's already probably a trillion dollars worth of digital assets that are just locked up in gaming, right? 150 billion every year. Uh, there's already literally provably tens of billions of dollars of Counter-Strike ghost skins. So you add on DeFi, you add on financial utility, it probably gets 10 times larger. You have index funds, yeah. Goldman Sachs trading the stuff. So yeah. it's going to be very meaningful. I think it needs to be secure. Uh, our approach has always been self-custody first make the you know invisible user experience, but we never wanted to have like uh, custodial wallets as a default. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to transition a little bit into talking about the the current state of gaming in crypto. Yeah. Um, you obviously mentioned you have the lion share, what is it, 75, 76% of all games. Um, is there a game today that you would play uh, that leverages crypto as kind of like a, you would dub a crypto game? For sure, there's actually one on my phone that we just won that's not it's not public yet, but I'm really excited about it. It's already got uh, hundreds of thousands of players in like in Web2 while they're testing. Okay. Um, we just won this one yesterday. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, totally. I mean, like play Alluvium Auto Battler, play uh, Cross the Ages, play Guild of Guardians if people have been in the beta uh, with day one retention of 67%. Uh, I mean, there's games coming out and the, the universal thing about our catalog is – we rank every game in the market map of all Web3 games. And our criterion is, what's the team quality? Okay, have they previously shipped successful games with millions of customers? That's actually another one criterion. Second, what's the economics and approach to uh, Web3 game design? Third, what's the funding? How much vibe how do they have behind to, to make this successful? Uh, fourth, what's their sort of, you know, regular gameplay quality? What's the quality of the game they've built so far? And then fifth, what's their time to market? Obviously that matters the most to us. We want to have hits faster. Right. But uh, what that produces is games that we're play testing. We're looking at, will ordinary people love these games? And that's how we prioritize where our go-to-market efforts go. And this is why I always say, 
when we have 220 well-funded games, these are the ones that we've actively proactively decided uh, these are the ones that can be potential hits. And we've playtested the games and our internal thing's pretty brutal. They're like, hey, this is, you know, uh, not, a, not a great game. Uh, but the reason that's so important is I'm not that interested in just having the next iteration of D5 thinly skinned as a game yeah, in order yeah. to generate narrative legitimacy. We keep going through the same cycles in crypto, <laughs> right? Like it's, uh, and I'm really not speaking to anything in particular here, but we, we often go through someone recreates some sort of Ponzi and they just try and wrap it in the thing that is kind of the zeitgeist in order to give it narrative legitimacy or some cut through. Yeah. And I, I'm, I, I, I'm saddened every time I see games using that because I think the point is we don't have to do that. There's real demand out there. People want to trade this stuff. Let's just give them ownership and, and make a real value proposition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say like fundamentally people play games because it's a distraction from the real world. It's just fun. Um, but then there's nothing wrong. With the I guess what you're saying is there's nothing wrong with the financialization of and, and layering on incentives. People criticize that as saying it's not sustainable. The in-game economy is not, yeah, you know, yeah. here are these kind of criticisms to play to earn. I would say play and earn is the, the more yep. viable model. But what is your perspective on that as a whole? Like, you know, these economies, you talked about that being a pretty big criteria as you evaluate a game. Like, what are some parameters or things that you say, hey, this can actually work? Um, yeah. So first of all, the fundamental difference between uh, sustainable and non-sustainable, I guess, game is, is the reason you play the game to earn money, in which case it's kind of zero sum based on your financial return profile, or is it because you like playing the game? And there can be as much financialization as you like within that. You can have games where they're fun and a whale wants to spend $10 million because now they have the ability to sell later. And that's totally fine. That's just an expansion of the value proposition as long as there's some fundamental reason you'd play that experience, in my opinion. Um, but I have nothing against super you know, financialized games. I think we're, the vast majority of revenue is driven by whales anyway. We're now delivering them far more value because now the whale who spends a million dollars in game of war is in, oh, great, I've... I've have nothing to show for this. They can build an ecosystem. They can own part of land and guilds and be a person who's meaningful in that ecosystem. I think that's yeah. awesome. Uh, the second thing though on economic sustainability, this is the reason why we do immutable studios. This is why we publish things like Build of Guardians so that we actually have people on the front line understanding what it takes to build a sustainable economy. And so we have a lot of uh, thoughts here. We'll be rolling them out with, with Guild of Guardians and, and testing out our latest paradigm. But the first hit, will be the, the model that everyone copies. You saw that with Axie and people copied it and ultimately it was unsustainable. Nothing against Axie, you know, great game. Uh, but uh, that's how gaming evolves, right? Is you have a, a hit and then people copy that sort of hit. We saw this with Farmville, with Mafia Wars. Mafia Wars has been reskinned into 20 different, different games, all leveraging, you know, the social and uh, graph of, of Facebook. Uh, we want to make sure when there's the first hits, they're copying fundamentally sustainable economies. Yeah. I mean, look... Uh we should probably talk about what is wrong or what are the challenges of traditional game studios? Because, I mean, there's a lot of, pro I mean, you look at Zynga as a company and look, Mark Pincus has gotten quite interested in Web3, I think, and, and people should go out and check out kind of his great kind of threads around this. Yeah. But, you know, you have the retention problem, you know, the half-life of a, of a game, whether it's fast, casual uh, or AAA game is pretty, is pretty tough. I mean, yep. you have to, it's sort of this, treadmill that you're yep. on a hamster wheel that you have to put out more and more hits yeah 
Um, and it's a real race to the bottom, right? So yeah. my, my favorite stat is uh, in, in China, like we've shifted from, hey, you pay for the ability to play a game to you pay for items inside of games to now you have literally clone games in China. They have like a Clash Royale or Clash of Clans clone and they advertise themselves as our loot boxes are half the price of our competitors. So like it's it's a complete race to the bottom, right? It's completely okay. Who can get cheaper acquisition? Who can you know sell this value proposition for less? Yeah. All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London, March eighteenth to twentieth, for Blockworks's eighth ever Digital Asset Summit, DAS. This is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019. I like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto. People are still wearing suit and tie. It's pretty funny, but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from Standard Charter, FIS, JP Morgan, Framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One, Bitcoin catalysts, the halving and the spot ETF. Two, a view from the buy side. Three, RWA's tokenization and stable coins. Four, Four, global regulatory frameworks, five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments, and six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got your back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is Empire20. There is a little competition running internally at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out, register with our code, and you get 20% off. That is Empire20. You and I both invest, you from studios, personally, gaming is probably the top category or the second where I've invested into so many teams. Yeah. And I think what most people don't appreciate is you have really talented builders from Candy Crushes of the world, from all these great studios saying, there's something here, there's something interesting in crypto. Yeah. Uh, the retention, you know, the NFT component, like layering com- elements of Web3 that can actually solve some of these problems that challenge totally. gaming, right? Um, build more engagement and whatnot. Um, I guess, like, what, um, like, could you give us some perspective? Because I think people don't really appreciate, I think, one, games take a long time to build. Yep. You have fast casual, I guess, but even that, like, yep. these things take time to build. Um, and I think we're just going to start seeing these. I mean, the Lugan's already out. Yeah. But we're going to see, like, what, what's what's the next year or the next 18 months look like in terms of... So I think 40 to 50% of the games built on Immutable today will be live in 2024. So it's wow. going to be a big year. Uh, that's when we start to see, you're hitting the three-year development point for most of the games. And that's typically kind of the lower bar of uh, time it takes required to build a, a good game. There will be delays, but that's why we have 200 of them. Right, so that across the portfolio, you're having this, you know, core lot of games going live that we can help support. I think even the micro game bull run we've seen in the last couple of months will accelerate things. People will try and get to market faster. They'll try and ship tokens faster. And the most interesting thing to me is when you look at the largest game. I think you're totally right, right? Which is the smartest people in game design today are saying, "Hey, there might actually be something here." Not saying they're going and saying, let's shift Activision Blizzard overnight. There's no reason <laughs> for them to. Like, this is innovators' dilemma, right? They're, but you have in Korea, you know, five of the 10 largest public gaming companies there actively building very serious efforts, eight or nine figures of budget into Web3. You have Migaloo, which is 
Crafton's Web3 competitor to Roblox with hundreds of people. You have uh, Nexon building MapleStory, their core IP, with the Web3 variant. Uh, we've mapped the 61 largest gaming companies in the world by market capitalization. 30 of them have active full-time teams dedicated to Web3 gaming. Exploring it, yeah. building a game, building several games. Only one out of the 61 said we will never do this. So it's clearly going to happen. Like there are clearly going to be hits out of the 15 billion US dollars that's now been invested. What do these studios look like in two or three, five years? In a, in a version of this world where gaming's a huge hit yeah. in Web3, how do they take their existing portfolio and maybe yeah. wrap NFTs around it? Yeah. Or or is it like you talk about innovation dilemma? Like how do you see that transition? Is it a graceful one? Can they manage it? Or is it or you're more bullish on new studios like crypto native studios? I, I think uh oh that's a good question. I'll, I'll get to that end question. You know, I think we're gonna see mega hits, right? So it like there's gonna be a ton of failures, but the biggest gains are gonna dwarf the volumes and revenue if web two hits even. And that will make people take notice and say, well, hey, if this game is delivering this much, and it actually doesn't matter whether the revenue is to them or to the community, it's just about how much economic opportunity is here. Uh, and how can I He's an interesting one. And by the way, it could happen in months' time because, I mean, people forget, but gamings are the most fast, like, revenue-scaling businesses ever. Like, yes. just go from zero to 100 yep. million in a month. Like, and they never need a fundraiser again because right. they're profitable, right? Uh, unless they have ambitions to build you know, broader studios and they need to de-risk. But uh, not if you have secondary royalties on, on, on all this stuff. Precisely. Like, yeah. um, and one of the things I'm super bullish on is games' biggest cost is Google or Facebook running ads, getting people to click in and play their games. They spend billions and billions of dollars of it. You know, Gabe Layden from Machine Zone was famously like the biggest performance marketing uh, spender in, on games of all time. And he was running Super Bowl ads for hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, what I think, what we have the opportunity to do is completely replace that spend with viral sharing of games because you give players value that cause them to stick around longer, share with their friends, and even to take a chunk of your future value of that game, tokenize it, and then give that token away. Yeah. There's this idea in gaming, um, before crypto is also investing games, like this viral coefficient and the virality of like, hey, you you play a game, you tell your friends, like, and how does that propagate? I think you can, we've seen time tag any crypto that's super powerful, yeah. you know, and, and you can embed interesting referral programs on chain. You can yeah. notify a lot of the stuff um, that it's not a Ponzi if it's a real product. It's sort of like- You're bringing real demand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's it's an- It's just affiliate marketing. Yeah, it's just a more efficient way, whether instead of paying Google billions of dollars to acquire customers, your customer acquisition costs can be arguably lower, more efficient, more yeah. trackable- and you own a more direct relationship with the user yeah. and to build a better community because, you know, it's a win-win. You know, the users also benefit from this economy. And- it's basically removing ad brokers as a middleman or and, and instead replacing it with directly sharing that value with your audience in exchange for them becoming your early evangelists. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a strictly superior model. Yeah. 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 Um, what, uh, what have been kind of the the challenges that you foresee in terms of like, if if two hundred, a thousand games launch, is there an upper bound? And have you guys done the math around? Hey, we can credibly support X amount of users, like load balancing, like this. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 
There's obviously an upper limit to what we can support on just immutable CKVM. That upper limit is very high, like it's the highest of any you know L2. Uh, it's Fluidium implementation, so it's optimized for uh, the gaming scaling in particular. Uh, we've done a lot of optimization around uh, you know NFT design, etc. But uh, and we'll be supporting ERC one one five five, which people will be uh, excited to hear, uh, which we don't have on our app specific rollup. But the key thing is horizontal scaling. So the ability for anyone to have their own immutable app chain, you'd have cross rollup liquidity across hundreds or indeed thousands one day of these app chains. And that means you can, with assets on chain A, purchase a listing on chain B with our global order book across any marketplace using uh, any wallet, using any denomination of that listing on any immutable supported rollup. And I think that's how we have this engine that's sort of aggregating liquidity and providing the best prices to anyone who wants to trade. So if you're a, a game, the viable kind of, they may deploy an immutable, they get really big, they'll arguably likely transition to their own app chain. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So I think like a, gi- a giant scale game. Like a, like uh, most games scale. won't need this. Exactly. And kind of have more uh, sovereignty. Save a world of Warcraft or like it. Yeah. Yeah. And they can control more parameters by having their own chain. Precisely. Yeah. They could have their own native gas currency. Uh, and I think the other cool thing is this gives a really strong sovereign option to people who want to build their own platforms or, or chains for, for infrastructure as well. Yeah. yeah. How does the uh, like the global liquidity, I mean, that's pretty novel, in the connectivity. To, I'm not like I'm, I'm thinking of IBC or yeah. uh, is, is it like how does that actually work? So, if I go too technical. About yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few things that give us an edge here. The main thing it comes down to is vertical integration of the platform. So because we own and build both the roll-up layer and the wallet layer and the waterbook layer, we can create seamless experiences that other people can't. So a good example is imagine you're, I won't cite this specific example, but on another you know, super chain or app chain, you're trying to buy an asset on chain B with from funds on chain A. You have to bridge those funds across. As soon as you signal, and, and first off, that has you know obviously finality times to the blocker. Um, so unless you're using ZK uh, proofs, it's going to be a problem. Second off, you have to, as soon as you signal to MEV, you're likely to be front run. Uh, and so you have this problem of like, how, do, how do you have liquidity across different uh, rollups? And third, you have the weakest link problem, which is if you have different security models for each of your proofs, your entire ecosystem is only as secure as your weakest link. We solve all three of these. I, I, and, and the way we solve them is the global order book means we can actually lock down bids on asset on chain B as soon as you indicate a bid on chain A. And because we have the, the passport, the user experience, we can make that completely invisible in an atomic transaction to the end user. And because we're using the same security model, CK rollups on everything, it's yeah. security. So I think that's kind of how we think about things from an architecture perspective. That's super interesting. Yeah. Oh, and violate uh, because we have the global order book, you can not only do it in different rollups, one person can be, say, selling in an in-game marketplace and the other person can be, say, on Sphere Marketplace or uh, GameStop or Rarible or Magic Eden. And that means you're uh, unifying liquidity not just across rollups but across any trade venue. Yeah. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on, I know you're a gamer, uh, what are some of the types of games that you're most excited about? Um, you know, maybe we can go through different categories. You know, We've seen a lot of TCGs uh, and I think that's, a native mimetic fit for Web3. I think there's a very strong, clear value proposition there. I'm very excited for games that are mobile targeting Asia. I think they're going to be huge and they're probably where the next 10 million is going to come from. We have a ton of games building in Asia right now. Honestly, even I was just in Hong Kong last week, even out of mainland China. Obviously, crypto is not legal there. 
but you have people like <laughs> building games and then not seeking to publish them locally. They just want to do global publishing with Web3 and they're kind of in, you know, cottage industries and like kind of, you know, building in clandestine ways. I mean, it's not the, the worst thing in the world, but they're not being overt about it. Right. I, um, and there's, I was talking, there's literally hundreds of these games over there. So, um, I think it's certainly going to be Asia, which will be first across the post. Um, other things I'm excited about, I think things leveraging UGC with Web3 incentives. Yeah. Super excited about shooters targeting like the CSGO strategy. I mean, uh, if you have a look at like uh, the reactions, say, to uh, some of the uh, to Midnight Society or Dead Drop, it's a mainstream audience watching that and they're pretty supportive of that because they're used to paying for items in CSGO. They understand the value that they're getting. And so I think that's a really big validating step for me. There's no pushback there. And this is the most hardcore gamers you have in a Western audience because they natively experience this value in CSGO and because they've gotten screwed over before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's almost like if you talk to Vitalik and so many other people that have been interested in crypto, yeah. it's because of this trading skins problem. That yeah. They, you know, Vitalik famously said, so, the, you know, the, the damage component of his World of Warcraft spell being removed, <laughs> which I, I think may have been facetious, but like it is kind of a, yeah, a, yeah. a great evidence point. Yeah. So look, I mean, obviously, no surprise. I'm really excited about Game A. Uh, I think next year and the visibility that I have, you have, it's it's looking like there's going to be really fun games that we can play. And I'm really excited about it. I guess for a skeptic listening, like, why won't this work? Like, if, if you, in two years' time, we sit down again and we say, yeah. God, we're, we're all very excited and gung-ho as here without what we're seeing and the type of you know builders that we're seeing. What's, like, the bear case? I think maybe reg. Uh, but it, it seems like a low, you know. That's, like, existential for all of crypto. Yeah, exactly. Um realistically i can't see they're not being hits it's not like it could because there's no leap required to say you should be able to sell and off ramp your value from counter-strike ghost kids there's already demand there and demand for a long tail of games all with secondary market economies just on great databases and great marketplaces so you know this thing is going to take off i think the bear case is like it doesn't replace all of gaming right it's not every single multiplayer game with an economy is this and and that may take time but yeah. uh, like at this point, there's clearly going to be hits and it's about making sure that those are decentralized, those are done with frictionless user experience. Yeah. I mean, look, people constantly criticize, especially during bear markets, like there's no product market fit. There's no value. What's the point of all this? It's just a casino. Yeah. For me, the way I think about gaming very simplistically is like – NFTs are a very, like, it's touching a nerve. Like, collecting is such a, a powerful sport. It's social. People love collecting this stuff. Like, yeah. basically created the ability to have digital provable scarcity. Yeah. That creates, doesn't necessarily replace, it just creates an yeah. entire economy. And it fits so nicely with games. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, again, we're all super biased. But it, for me, that was the big aha moment. Of course, he put aside the broken economics and whatever of things that were DeFi with a veneer of gaming, but true fun games will work, I think. Totally agree. And I, I think you said it back on the head, right? NFTs are just taking the value proposition of Bitcoin, which is digital custodial ownership of goods with scarcity, and applying it to any form of value. And we just think the first place that's going to happen is the place where people are already spending hundreds of billions of dollars and getting zilch for it. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, let's transition a bit into talking about what's next for Immutable, um, you know, in terms of collaborations, partnerships, yep. um, your go-to-market, like how do you really win this category? You know, there's, again, hundreds yep. of L2s. 
you're very focused. You're very, how do you win the gaming category? Yeah, I, look, I think we're, we're close to, you know, being there at this point um, without tooting our own horn. We've, you know, we've, uh, I think, built considerable progress over the last year. End of last year, we had roughly 35% of all games. Polygon had the other 35%, the two-horse race. We were competing in market. We were spending tons on grants, hiring BDs. We negotiated, you know, for six months, I think one of the most meaningful partnerships that's happened in Web3. And that was taking Immutable's platform, combining it with the, you know, the open source CK technology that Polygon's been developing, and we don't want to build scaling infrastructure. It's not our business. And providing a joint solution to gamers that would massively simplify their choices when they were choosing, hey, how do we build on Web3? It shouldn't have to be, here's your scaling infrastructure, here's your platform, here's your wallet. It should just be, I'm just going to use Immutable. Right, and you have everything be saying defaults, and that's been an incredible partnership. And shout out to the Polygon team; it was exceptional. But this came about through the Hermes acquisition, Jordy. Exactly. Yeah. So they bought those three ZK teams back two years ago now, and I think what has been one of the most successful examples of M and A in the space. Uh, and, uh, and now I have including market leading ZK technology, and most importantly, we were able to unify our go to market efforts and have the mutual platform plus Polygon. Uh, basically have this incredibly strong joint value proposition. Since then, we've taken 100 well-funded games to over 220, and thousands more apply and self-service, building with our you know, APIs where you don't even need to build smart contracts. Our win rate has jumped from 35 to close to 70%. Uh, that means the percentage of deals we win when we're competing against other blockchains. So that's been phenomenal. I've been really thrilled with the progress of that. And, and the best thing has been, We've had games come to us and say, well, we were deciding between Immutable and Polygon, all the stress, and now it's just simple. We can get to market faster. And then I think we have the second form of those, which is um, the Merit Circle Partnership, which if you're watching this, has just gone live. Uh, which we're recording is... this on Tuesday. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, but it's going live, yeah. Yeah, on, on, on Thursday uh, uh, or Wednesday, US. Yeah. And uh, that is another example of us taking you know, the largest Web3 gaming down in the world, uh, who has $100 million non-native treasury, the much bigger native treasury, uh, has this incredible focus on how do they invest in, publish, build and structure for games. And we say, well, you know, why are we, we've been competing in market for the last year. We can simplify the choice for developers. We can massively improve our own efforts and we can create a much better end product. Um, so I'm really, really excited to be working with uh, the Merit Circle, Bean, Sphere Marketplace uh, on uh, Immutable CK AVM. They can be using Passport, Global Waterbook. Uh, and more importantly, we, we, you know, we're just sort of committed to developing this product and, and this partnership uh, to make it as useful as possible to game So for people that might not be even aware of what Merit Circle is, can you just maybe dig a little bit deeper into the role that they play in the gaming Ecosystem. The largest web through gaming down the world, $100 million native, uh, non-native treasury in cash and a much larger native treasury. And their focus is building you know, a, a suite of products in an ecosystem to help game developers uh, succeed and deliver a seamless user experience. And uh, again, the thesis was very similar, which is that they're currently building on uh, Avalanche and they're going to be you know, expanding and, and putting a lot of efforts on Immutable ZKVM. And they now don't have to... you know compete for these deals. We can work together on the games, building on Immutable, which is the lion's share of games in the industry. We can, you know, they massively reduce their costs and, and can build a much more successful business. Uh, and together, I think we just have a much stronger value proposition to game developers. So, you know, your question was, how do we build more market share when creating Immutable as a default platform? I think it's exactly this, which is by 
supporting and empowering people to build incredible businesses, incredible infrastructure with the, the suite of games building on Immutable today. We've put in the hard work to kind of onboard all of these people. Now they can go and you know build with businesses at different layers of the stack. So I think that's the the thing we're going to be really focused on over the next yeah. year. Yeah. So maybe for uh, if you're a builder, I guess uh, you've built games in the past for Web two. Like, how is that experience today? Like, what are the challenges that you need to overcome? You talk about tooling, you talk about merit circling, you guys make it easier for that. But how smooth or difficult is that transition? Like, you have to learn solidity, you have to, you know, understand certain things. Like, one yeah. of those things, right? I'm sure folks, are, you know, for anyone out there that is listening, saying, hey, I want to build a Web3 game. Like, yeah. What does that actually mean? So my, my favorite thing and what we started from day one is we always thought it was crazy to require people to have to learn smart contracts to build a Web3 game. We certainly have that. And if you build on the middle ZKVM, you can copy any default contracts from Ethereum L1, use it, build your own DeFi. But we imagine as this goes mainstream, the vast majority of people will want to build just using APIs like Stripe. You don't have to learn a proprietary language to build with Stripe. It's very, very simple uh, interface. In the same way, we've now integrated SDKs into Unity, into all latest versions of Unreal Engine, which are used in production today. This uh, is, for context, the most popular, probably, engine, right? Precisely, the, the, mo- the, most, the two most popular. And our thesis is just make this ridiculously simple. People shouldn't have to hire PhD economists, smart contract experts, solidity architecture uh, engineers. They shouldn't have to hire auditors. This stuff should be you know, boilerplate, audited, tested, and they should just work with a simple set of APIs to create a real economy. That's what we built today. I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, a good chunk of the people building today still build you know, directly with smart contracts, more advanced developers, most of the developers who are sort of you know, ETH native or Web3 native today, but that's kind of our, our long-term view. If you're building a marketplace, it's incredibly simple. So it sounds like it's gone super easy. You don't have to hire a Solidity engineer. You could just focus on building a beautiful, great product, feature parity or better than a Web2 game. Yep. And then you guys help with all the other stuff. Yeah. So join hub.immutable.com. Uh, you can sign up with Passport. You can build incredibly easily if you're, if you're a game dev uh, listening to this. And we'll automatically prioritize your game for access to grants and our BD team and the ecosystem. So just to recap, and I think this is a good place to end it, the five, or you said, I think four or five, the most important criteria as you value the game are, again. Uh, so the five are. The five are, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, team quality, uh, Web3 game design, uh, game design, quality of uh, the game that we're, we're testing, uh, funding, sorry, Web3 game design and game design combined, um, and time to market. So we want games that are coming out faster to have more shots and hits in 2024. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, Robbie, I'm super excited. Obviously, your journey. We've known each other for such a long time. We actually yep. met in person, like all you know, not too long ago. But we've known each other for, for a long time in the digital world. So amazing what you guys are doing. I think Pleasure, Santiago. One of those things that is being overlooked. I think, and we talk about narratives and empire a lot. And I think 2024 is going to be a fantastic year and a fun one for people to actually use products and and using crypto elements. So. Yeah, we're, we're you know, quietly confident. I think very excited about what it'll bring. I love that, quietly confident. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, Robbie. Thank thanks, you everyone. Yeah. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited, and we hooked you up with a 20% off discount code. It is Empire20. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at BlockWorks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code Empire20.
2020. See you in London.